Well, happy Mother's Day to all of you that are moms, and uh, thank you all, ladies, who uh, have um, a motherly instinct and uh, care and concern and nurture that you share with all of us uh, here in God's family, uh, the church. One of my favorite actors um, of all time, really, is uh, Gene Wilder, um, who can never forget his iconic role as uh, Willy Wonka in the 1971 movie, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You know, when uh, the director of that movie, Mel Stewart, approached Gene Wilder and asked him if he would uh, play that role, he read over the script and he said, okay, I'll do it on one condition. And this is what he said. He said, in the movie, when I make my first entrance, I'd like to come out of the door carrying a cane and then walk toward the crowd with a limp. After the crowd sees Willy Wonka as a cripple, they all whisper to themselves and then become deathly quiet. As I walk toward them, my cane sinks into one of the cobblestones I'm walking on and stands straight up by itself. But I keep on walking until I realize that I no longer have my cane. I start to fall forward, and just before I hit the ground, I do a beautiful forward somersault and bounce back up to great applause. And, of course, that's the way it happened in the movie. And, and the question is, why? I mean, why did he insist his one condition on doing this role that he be introduced that way? Here's why. He said, because from that time on, no one will know if I'm lying or telling the truth. And he was absolutely right. That introduction of that character in that movie set the tone for the whole rest of of the movie, and the very first impression that you gain of someone, uh, the very first time a character is introduced to you, it, it does set the tone in many ways. We're going through the book of uh, Genesis, and in Genesis chapter 22, we are introduced to a new character that heretofore had not been mentioned, but is a very important character in the book of Genesis. And it is a lady named Rebecca. Now, up to this point in the narrative of uh, the grand story of Genesis, which is really about God's unfolding plan in history, how God is going to bring salvation to all of us eventually, um, the main, one of the main characters, the main woman in the narrative has been a woman named Sarah. Now, I don't know exactly what Sarah looked like, but I think that she may have looked like the lady that's on the screen that you see today. And, of course, Sarah is married to a very famous character, a very interesting character, the most interesting man in the world at that time, and that's Abraham. And so we have Abraham and Sarah, and, of course, they didn't just appear on the, uh, on the scene by themselves, but um, Abraham had uh, a father, of course, and his father's name was Terah. What we have at the end of Genesis chapter 22 is a little bit of a genealogy, and so follow with me, if you will, on the family tree. I'm going to read some of these verses with a few uh, notes uh, that I'll just add in myself, uh, but you can follow the family tree on the screen behind me. And so we have Terah, the father of Abraham. He had two other sons by the name of Nahor and Haran, and Haran had a, uh, a daughter by the name of Milcah. Now, Milcah became married 
to her uncle Nahor. Let's stop here for just a minute. Uh, Because normally we don't have nieces marrying their uncles, and for good reason. But back in that day, before there was a lot of uh, genetic disparities and and problems uh, genetically, uh, if you do indeed believe, as I do, uh, that Adam and Eve produced all of the human race, um, they weren't that many generations removed from Adam and Eve. And this is it's a very different story if two uh, family members, close family members, uh, were to uh, get married and produce children today. You could have kinds of problems that really back in that day uh, was not quite of an issue. Plus, the, uh, the whole idea of trying to find a spouse is a little bit more uh, difficult back then than it is today. There weren't 7 billion people on the face of the planet. And so, uh, so she married uh, her uncle Nahor, and we read in Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 20. Now it happened after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Now we're going to read about the children that they had. They had eight, eight boys. Uh, and so we have seven of them that are listed first. Ooze his firstborn and booze his brother. Right there, we ought to be grateful to our mothers that they did not name us Ooze or Booze. All right? But that was these guys' names. Ooze and his firstborn and Booze his brother and Kemuel, the father of Aram, and Kesed and Hazo and Pildah and Jidlaf. Uh, and finally, we have this one guy who's going to set him off all by himself. His name is Bethuel. And uh, Bethuel uh, is very important because Bethuel is, as we read in verse 23, Bethuel was the father of Rebekah. Let's stop right here for a minute. Rebekah is the key person that's being introduced in this genealogy. Rebekah is very important. Why? Because she will eventually marry Isaac. Who's Isaac? Isaac is the heir to all of God's promises to Abraham. And so this couple will be very important. But we do need to finish the genealogy uh, as we read about it. And so Bethuel was the father of Rebekah. Here's a little summary. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. And, uh, and then we have his concubine, whose name was Rumah. Not Abraham's concubine, but Nahor's concubine, whose name was Ruma. She also bore Teba and Gaham and Tahash and Makkah. And so that concludes the brief genealogy to introduce Rebekah. Now, the key two people that will be on the scene in the chapters going forward are Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah will become a central figure And God's plan to do what? God's plan to fulfill his promises. His promises to who? To Abraham. What did God promise to Abraham? That he would make Abraham's descendants a nation. Not just any nation, but a nation that belongs to God alone. Unlike all of the other nations on the earth at that time, which had their own gods that they worshipped, their own idols that they worshipped, their temples uh, that they worshipped, that this nation, the nation that would eventually become what we know as Israel, would be God's nation. And they would worship God alone. And this nation would eventually produce a Savior 
not just a Savior of that nation, but a Savior of the whole world, Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and He is our Savior. But before any of that happens, Isaac, the heir to Abraham, has to produce an heir himself. And in God's good design, that is not something you can do alone. And so that will require that Isaac have something that God calls very good. And it's a good woman. And that is who Rebecca will turn out to be. Now, speaking of good women, Isaac's own mother, Sarah, has been a very good example to Isaac of what to look for in a wife and mother. And by the time he eventually happens to come across Rebecca by the providence of God, he will know what to look for in a potential wife. And so let's think about Sarah for just a minute as we turn to Genesis 23, beginning in verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, And Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. She died at an age of 127 years. That's pretty good. That's pretty long life, longer than most of us will live. But that means that Isaac, her son, was 37 years old because you remember she gave birth to Isaac at the grand old age of 90 years old by a miracle of God. So Isaac was 37 years old when she died. Abraham, Sarah's husband, 137 when she died. I want you to think about something. Abraham and Sarah very well may have been married for over a century. For over a hundred years, they may have been married. And I would venture to guess that the longer that you're married the harder it is when your spouse passes away. I mean, if a younger person is married only a brief time before losing a spouse, that spouse's death may be obviously a reason to mourn. It may be a shock because you wouldn't expect that to happen in its own right. But someone who's known a spouse for many decades has grown very accustomed to that person. Uh, knows what that person is thinking just by looking at them and uh, is really truly one with that person. And so they've been around that person for the better part of their entire life and then death comes and snatches that spouse away. You know, when a spouse dies, I think you do truly lose a part of yourself. A part of yourself dies as well. And so Abraham was, understandably, deeply hurt. And the Bible says that he came to mourn for Sarah, to weep for Sarah. But there's a problem. Because as Abraham is mourning, as he's weeping, the clock is ticking. You see, the clock never slows down. The hands of time never stop, even if you're having the worst day of your life. You can't make time fast forward and you can't slow it down. It just keeps on going. 
And for Abraham, no matter how hurt he was, the clock was ticking, and he had about 24 hours to bury his wife. You might wonder, well, why so soon? Well, you have to understand, when a body is not embalmed, when a dead body is not cremated, the process of decay comes pretty quickly. And if you're not sure exactly what embalming or cremating are, embalming is an artificial process to preserve the body. Cremating is an artificial process to destroy the body. And you might wonder, well, why didn't Abraham just, you know, embalm or cremate Sarah's body? Well, I want you, I want you to know, as popular as embalming is in the United States and, and cremation is becoming increasingly popular, uh, you simply don't find these practices being done in the Old or New Testament among God's people. Um, and you, you might wonder, well, why not? I mean, is embalming a sin? Is crema- cremating a body, a dead body, a sin? Uh, well, the Bible never says, thou shalt not embalm nor cremate. Uh, in fact, the bodies of Jacob and Joseph were both embalmed, but they were exceptions to the rule. Why? Because they both died in Egypt, and both of their bodies needed to be transported to the promised land for burial. Um, The view of God's people throughout the Old and New Testament with regard to the handling of dead bodies is pretty simple. The body is holy. And to allow nature to take its own course, because God created nature itself as well, is what God's people in the Old and New Testament typically did. Without artificial preservation, without artificial destruction. And so if you live back then and you let nature take its course with the dead loved one, um, it's going to happen pretty quickly. And you can wrap the body in cloths, you can uh, uh, douse it, anoint it with oils and perfumes, you can have the body put in a pine box, but I'll tell you what, the clock is ticking. And that's Abraham's problem. The clock is ticking. He needs to bury his wife. And he owns no land. Now, he can't take Sarah all the way back to his hometown of Ur uh, in southern uh, modern Iraq. Um, He just can't do that. That's about a thousand-mile trek on foot. You know, and the body's not embalmed. It's not like putting Edna on the top of the station wagon. You just can't do it. And so, you know, he can't do that. And so the only other piece of property that Abraham owns is a water well. And it's far away in Beersheba, and that's, that's not an option. So what do you do? Well, Abraham has one option. He has to get property, it has to be close by, and it has to be now. And that's what Abraham intends to do. And so Abraham is on this quest to get some property in verses 3 through 16. We read in verse 3, Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth. Who in the world are the sons of Heth? promise I won't do another long genealogy, but I want to tell you this. Hundreds of years before, many, many years before, generations before, there was a guy you may have heard of. His name was Noah. And Noah had three sons, Japheth, Shem, and Ham. 
Sounds like a great law firm. J. Fethersham and Hale. Dewey, Cheatham, and Hal, you know, come on. And, uh, or it sounds like a, a sandwich. J, I'll take the J. Fest Shem and Ham sandwich. Uh, but nevertheless, it's not a sandwich. These are Noah's three sons. And one of Ham's grandsons was a guy by the name of Heth. Now, many generations down the line, Abraham is dealing with the descendants of Heth. Some of these uh, descendants of Heth, as we'll see in this story, uh, formed a great nation of their own called the Hittite Empire. And the Hittites... Uh, were their, the main base of their empire was not there, but it was in, in modern-day Turkey. Uh, but they had a colony at this point in time right there in the middle of modern-day Israel where Abraham was living, and so they owned all the land. They owned the land, not Abraham. But Abraham needs land to bury his wife, and so he goes and he speaks to the landowners. He's sitting in the city square, and he says to them, I am a sojourner. And a foreign resident among you, give me a possession for my burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, the first thing we, I want to point out is that he says, I'm a sojourner, I'm a foreigner. And he's basically saying, I have no land. I don't even have any land to bury my dead. And so he's, he's appealing to their sense of hospitality uh, to treat someone nice even though this other person himself does not own any land. But make no mistake about it, he wants to own, he wants to possess a piece of property to bury his wife. And he says that I might bury my wife, that I might bury my dead out of my sight. He makes it very clear, it has to be out of my sight. The body has to be out of my sight. Again, this is a uh, we have an interesting custom here in the United States uh, called visitation, or sometimes in the uh, other areas it's called wake, where the body is embalmed, it's put on display, and we go and look at it. Interesting concept. Uh, Abraham, that would have been completely foreign to him. Um, he said, I need to bury the body, get it out of my sight. So this was his appeal. And we read in verses 5 to 6. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead and the choicest of our burial sites. None of us will refuse you his burial sites for burying your dead. And so they, they call him a mighty prince. Here's this stranger. Here's this foreigner, this sojourner. And yet they know that the hand of God is upon him. They know that Abraham's reputation precedes him. They know that Abraham's God protects him. They've heard the rumors. They've seen it. And so they know that this man, Abraham, is special. So they're going to make an allowance. And they say, pick your spot. Barrier anywhere you want in any of our tombs. I mean, because Abraham is so well respected, they're going to allow him to bury Sarah's body along with their own dead, but they're not going to sell him or give him land of his own. Well, Abraham will not be deterred. He wants a parcel, a parcel of land that is his own, and so he begins the negotiation. We read in verses 7 and through 9. 
So Abraham rose and he bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your desire for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. And meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a possession for a burial site. Very first thing Abraham does, he rose and he bowed himself before the people of the land. Here they are there in the city gates. The city gates are right when you walk into the city. And uh, this is where important business is transacted. This is a public meeting. There are witnesses at this meeting, and Abraham knows what he's doing. You know, sometimes it's good to talk to someone in private. But sometimes it's good to have witnesses and to do it in public. And a wise man knows when to do which. And he knew what he was doing. And so he's in public at the city gates, and it says that Abraham bowed to the people. He showed them the utmost respect. Let me tell you something. When someone else has something that you need, you might consider whether it's in your best interest to humble yourself before them. Unfortunately, many people are just too prideful to ever humble themselves before them. Who is the greater man? All these nobodies or Abraham? It was Abraham. He was the greater man. He was the mighty prince by their own statement. And yet he humbled himself before them. Abraham was wise in doing so. And he said, if it is your desire for me to bury my dead out of my sight. Let me tell you something. This passage is an absolute masterclass at negotiation. Abraham is masterful here. What does Abraham do right here? He says, if it is your desire for me to bury my dead out of my sight, he finds a point of agreement between both parties. The point of agreement is this. Guys, we don't all want a dead body around here, do we? Well, obviously. And so he finds that point of agreement. And then, once both parties are on the same page, now it's simply a matter of finding terms that both parties can agree to. At this point, this deal is as good as done. I think Abraham knows it. These other guys are about to find out. And so now that they have a point of agreement, Abraham takes the discussion from the general to the specifics, from agreement and principle to the details. And Abraham came to the negotiating table ready to do business. Abraham shows us if you're going to negotiate, have your ducks in a row, as we say, have your plan ready to go, and then start negotiating. He, he came ready, and he said, hear me. He's ready to start dealing. Abraham came to the negotiating table with a specific person in mind. And he says to them, meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me. Who, do, who is this guy? Who knows? I don't know who he is. But Abraham did. 
He's the guy that owns the land that I want. And he tells them, he tells the town's elders, you meet with him. Abraham is actually getting the elders of the town to advocate on his behalf. And so now it's everyone against Ephron, the son of Zohar. You see, Abraham came to the negotiating table knowing who he was going to ultimately have to deal with, but he also had a specific place in mind. He said that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him, which is at the end of his field. And Abraham had a price in mind too. But Abraham doesn't name the price. Abraham is smart enough not to negotiate against himself. I mean, have you ever gone to buy a car and the car salesman says something to you along the lines of, well, what's your income? None of your business. I'm not going to negotiate against myself, but so many of us do, don't we? Abraham is a master negotiator. And he's not going to negotiate against himself. He doesn't name the prize. Because if you name a prize too high, you're costing yourself money unnecessarily. So all he says is, I'll pay full price. For the full price, let him give it to me. He wants Ephron, the owner of the land, to set the price. And you know something else? Abraham came ready. He came to the negotiating uh, table ready to purchase the land. Not borrow it, not share it, but to purchase it. Because he says, let him give it to me in your presence as a possession for a burial site. Now, all the pressure is on Ephron. We read about him in verses 10 and 11. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham, In the hearing of of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, no, my lord. Hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. And the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. We might read this and say, hey, problem solved. Now he can bury, now Abraham can bury his dead wife. But not so fast. Ephron is being very shrewd. Ephron wants to quote unquote give the land to Abraham without transferring the deed. Why? Well, if something should ever happen to Abraham, and it probably will pretty soon, I mean, he's 137 years old. If something should ever happen to Abraham, and if something were to ever happen to his only heir, Isaac, The person who would have a claim to the land would be Ephron. Give it back to me. I owned it before. I should own it again. Abraham is not going to fall for this trick. In verses 12 and 13, Abraham again bowed before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please hear me, I will give the silver for the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead 
there. Abraham insists on a public financial exchange for the land. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, hear me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. Ephron, at this point, names the price of the land that he's willing to receive. But he does it in a way that is respectful of the situation. Sort of mentions it offhand. Well, that's 400, but that's not what's really important. Bury your dead. Verse 16, so Abraham heard Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. Very specific language here. Verses 17 and 18. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within the confines of its border were deeded over to Abraham as purchased in the sight of the sons of Heth before all who came in at the gate of his city. Now, and only now, Abraham owns the land on a legal transaction. We have witnesses present. We have the property outlined The terms of exchange were agreed upon. The payment was measured out. It was verified. And the property deed was handed over. Verses 19 and 20. After this, Abraham buried his wife in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for possession for a burial site by the sons of Heth. Now, What is this story? What's the story that we just read? I mean, it's obviously the story of Sarah's uh, death and her burial, but there's something more going on. And we know this because in the very first words of this story, there's something there that should indicate something strange is going on. It's something we don't find anywhere else in Scripture. You might wonder, what is it, the death of a wife and mother? No. Unfortunately, that's an all-too-common experience. What's unusual here is that this is the only place, in verse 1, is the only place in Scripture where a woman's age is listed at the time of her death. Now, most ladies would just assume not everyone know. But her age is listed. Why? That's the question. Why? Here's the answer. The indication that Sarah was 127 years old at the time of her death, that is a marker that establishes the exact year that God began to fulfill his promise to give Abraham the land. When did God begin to keep his promise to give Abraham the land? It was the year that Sarah turned 27. It was the year that Isaac turned 37. It was the year that Abraham turned 137. It was that year that God began to keep his promise that he made. You see, 
The lesson of this story is this. God always keeps his promises. And he keeps them all the way until they are complete. What did God promise Abraham? We read about it in Genesis 12. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your seed I will give this land. Next chapter, Genesis 13. And Yahweh said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give it to you and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your seed can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Genesis 15. On that day, Yahweh cut a covenant with Abraham, with Abram, saying, To your seed... I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Gergesite and the Jebusite. I'm going to give it all to you, Abraham. Genesis 17. God says, and I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This story is not just the story of Sarah's death. It is the story of how God took what was to Abraham a tragic situation and secured for him a parcel of land that God had promised. And as God's promise to Abraham unfolded from that day forward, that single piece of land would be multiplied. That parcel would be expanded. That plot would be thickened until one day it would be totally fulfilled, stretching from the Euphrates River to the Nile River. All of it God will keep. His promise to Abraham. This is the story of God's faithfulness. And this is the way God works. You see, you and I, like Abraham, we go through the highs and the lows of life. We go through trials and temptations. We go through times of joy and times of great sorrow and sadness. But God is always present. Even if we can't see Him. Even if he seems to be in the background, God is always present. And he fulfills all of his promises. He providentially works out his plan. And he carries us close to his heart. For the Lord is my shepherd. Sometimes we have trouble seeing God. We commit a sin. 
we think that God doesn't love us anymore. Or we think that God left us. Or maybe we suffer and we grieve and we mourn and we wonder, where's God when I need Him? But I want you to understand, God loves you when you sin. He stays with you when you stumble. And He understands when you're hurt. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. And it is this high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered and died on a cross, paying for our sin and bringing us to God. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord, who rose from the grave in order to make us right with God. And Scripture clearly teaches us that if you believe in Him today, He will grant you the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. God has made a promise to you. I will never leave you. I will never, ever forsake you. That's a long time. And that's a promise we can hold on to.